traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance and economics editor, and you're listening to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, will Uber's new CEO restore the company's image? People think that Khosrow Shahi, although he has a low profile, is a very able candidate and is hopefully going to restore some order to Silicon Valley's most chaotic tech company. A glimpse into the once secretive world of an American agribusiness giant. They're also trying now to kind of open up a bit and give a little bit more clarity about their business because consumers are so much more concerned about the transparency of their food. And do people migrate when taxes rise? Some people respond, but the amount of people which actually moved due to this is not as high as people or politicians might have believed before. But first, Uber, the ride-hailing giant, has at last chosen a new boss. Dara Khosrowshahi, the former boss of Expedia, is regarded as a smart dealmaker and a competent operator. But can he rally the Uber troops? After a year of scandals, clashes with regulators and accusations of sexual harassment at the firm. Alexandra Switch, our US technology editor, joins me now from Silicon Valley. Alexandra, how much of a surprise is his appointment? After all, there are a lot of quite big names in the frame. The search for a new CEO has been going on since June when Travis Kalanick, Uber's founder, resigned after a huge number of setbacks and scandals at Uber. Uh, Khosrow Shahi's name had not been mentioned. Better known tech uh, CEOs and um, the former CEO of GE, Jeff Immeld, an industrial conglomerate, um, and Meg Whitman, who's the CEO of HP Enterprise, they were thought to be the two leading contenders. So it was a surprise. Generally, people are really happy about the news. So Khosrow Shahi has been running Expedia for over a decade. Uh, Expedia is an online travel site, which might at first not seem like it shares very much in common with ride hailing, um, but in fact does. Both are marketplaces where people go to transact. The business model is to take a cut um, of the price of whatever they're selling. Um, and they rely on really large scale and technical infrastructure. So slightly different sectors, um, both in the travel business um, and both marketplaces. And I think that people uh, think that Khosrow Shahi, although he has a low profile, is a very able candidate and is hopefully going to restore some order to Silicon Valley's most chaotic tech company. And as you were suggesting, it seems it's a firm at which there's there's never a dull moment. I mean, of all these various issues that have been bubbling along at, at Uber, what, what do you think is top of his entry? There are three things that he has to do. The first is to fix Uber's culture. And I think that that sounds more easily said than done. Culture is built from the top, but it's also built from the foundation of a company. And Uber was growing so quickly that no one put in the work to really uh, kind of 
describe what Uber stood for, except for rapid growth. Um, so that's the first order of the day, kind of boosting the morale of employees and assuring them that he has values um, and that he is going to create a, a strong uh, moral culture at a firm that's lacked one. The other two issues are legal. Um, so the first is that earlier this year, uh, Uber was sued by Google's self-driving car unit, Waymo, and uh, over the theft of intellectual property, um, Uber had bought a startup that was founded by a form- former Waymo employee, and they alleged that that employee stole trade secrets. Every day that this goes on in court, um, there's been several hearings and it's scheduled to go to trial in October, Uber comes out looking worse. So I would suspect that they will want to settle this rather than seeing it go to trial. And There's an overhang of uncertainty about the self-driving car technology they're able to use um, as a result of this legal dispute. So I think they'd be wise to settle it. But that's something that the new boss will have to decide. And then the third is probably as immediate as the culture fix, which is uh, there's an internal legal dispute where uh, one of Uber's largest investors, Benchmark Capital, which is a very prominent venture capital firm in Silicon Valley and used to be one of Uber's biggest boosters, has sued Travis Kalanick, the founder, um, saying that he defrauded them um, in, in not disclosing material information about Uber's setbacks when he had asked to add three boards seats. Um, And Kalanick, you know, is, of course, pushing back. I think that the new boss is going to have to come forward and ask both of them to kind of step down because having this internal fighting is a huge distraction, both for the board, but the employees. I would add that the news of Khosrow Shahi's appointment was actually a little bit mixed for one reason, which is that it leaked. Um, Uber had not deliberately announced his appointment. In fact, when the news came out, they were still negotiating his pay package and there was uncertainty about whether he was definitely going to accept. So that leak is believed to have come from the board and that annoyed Uber's employees because it showed the continued dysfunction at the company. So I think that Uber needs to see its board shape up. Alexander Switch, thank you. What do you think about Uber and the news about its new boss? Let us know your thoughts. Tweet us at Economist Radio or email us at radioeconomist.com. Next, the Economist business section this week has a look at Cargill, a firm whose activities span the world and, by revenue, America's largest privately held company, but one not many of us know much about. I'm joined by Henry Trix, our energy and commodities editor. Henry, just describe Cargill's business. What, what do they do? Well, they're a difficult business to, uh, to, to grasp, uh, partly because they're a privately traded company, so they don't release much information about what goes on within their businesses, um, but also because it's such an incredibly sprawling um, array of businesses. Um, the, uh, the origination of the business back 150 years ago was the... Uh, uh, the trading, the storage, the transport of um, of, of grains and other commodities, um, and uh, and that you know, remains a very significant part of the business. But um, recently, they've started to move um, further up the 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 value chain in food. Um, they make a lot more ingredients. Um, they are. 
uh, um, venturing into more into animal nutrition, into the feeding of fish. I mean, I went to visit uh, a Cargill operation in Norway um, where they were celebrating the fact that they just produced a record size 17 kilo salmon that had grown in record time um, and uh, because of the uh, the new kind of fish food that 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 they're using so um so they um they are involved in you know all sorts of of businesses uh throughout the uh agribusiness uh landscape but they are um they're also trying now to kind of open up a bit and and uh, give a little bit more clarity about their business because consumers are so much more concerned about the transparency of the of of the, their food I was going to ask you that. I mean, you're suggesting that the perception that they have been secretive is in some ways justified, but they are opening up. They opened up to you, at least. Uh, Why is that? Secretive is probably putting it too far. They felt no particular need to talk to people for a long time, but they got pilloried um, in around you know the 1990s and the early 2000s um, by NGOs and others um, when there was a lot of focus on you know the 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 lack of traceability in the supply chain, the whole all the environmental issues related to it, that sort of thing. Um, now they they're opening up. Um, because they understand that consumers have much more awareness of the food that they eat. They want to know much more about where they come. And also Cargill um, has to, you know, in a sense, move away or not. Um, it, it has to de-emphasize the bulk commodities business that has sort of been its backbone over, over the last century and a half um, and develop more kind of branded products and higher value added products because the commodity cycle has really turned against those bulk um, those those bulk grains uh, there's been fantastic harvests um, across the the well across the Americas at least over the last three or four years the Chinese led boom has kind of come to an end so there's an extraordinary grain surplus and very low volatility in the grain markets. So there's not much opportunity to make money there. So Cargill has to look elsewhere to find uh, to find the profits. How have they been doing? You've been talking about various difficulties they face, consumer concerns, bumper harvests. Uh, have, they, have they been doing well nevertheless? Well, yes. In a funny way, they've brought a kind of um, an activist um, shareholder approach to a private company. Um, they've uh, um, since uh, Dave McLennan, the chief executive, took over in 2013. Uh, they've 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 really taken a, um, a firm-handed approach to costs. They've tried to streamline some of the businesses. They've changed the organisation of the business. And what you can see is that returns are rising um, in what is basically a very low return business. They're helped in this by the fact that they have two families that remain the only or the most significant shareholders in the business. Um, and they, um, and they, they want you know, a business that's there for the long term. So they're not asking Cargill to you know, change every quarter or even every year. But, um, but it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a sort of corporate governance in a sense that pushes them now uh, to be not only more profitable, but also more considerate about its environmental impact. And, and in both cases, I think you can say there has been progress. Henry Trix, thank you very much for joining us.
And finally, our economics correspondent, Samaya Keynes, has just come back from the Lindau Conference. Samaya, what's that? Well, once every three years, the Nobel laureates in economics gather along with a few hundred young economists in this inspiring exchange of ideas uh, and research. Um, What did you take away from this meeting of great minds? There was this amazing contrast between the Nobel laureates and the young economists. So the the laureates were really the old guard. Um, there There was lots of theory being presented. But for me, the most exciting bits were when the young economists were presenting their research. So the forefront of economics today is is actually much more empirical than it was, say, 20, 30 years ago. I spoke to Dirk Foremny from the University of Barcelona about his research. And so the question he was answering was whether people migrate in response to higher tax rates. Uh, so this is a hot topic. When France raised its top marginal tax rate, Gérard Depardieu famously left um, and this is one of the main arguments against raising top, top tax rates. You know, oh, if it goes too high, then people will just leave. So the first thing I asked him was why he chose Spain for this study. Ideally, we would like to see or observe whether like, this kind of migration happens at an international level. This is very complicated because there is no such a data set which would allow us to trace people over like across international borders. And that's why we had to find a natural experiment where we basically have data about individuals and where we can trace those individuals over space across different regions which are charging different top marginal tax rates. And that's why we have chosen Spain, because in 2011, like the government believed that subnational regions need more revenues, and one way to, to, to equip them with, with more revenues was basically to decentralize uh, a part of the personal income tax. So... What happened in this reform is that regions, autonomous communities in Spain, which are comparable to German lender or other federal units in like provinces in Canada, got the right to set their own marginal tax rates and also to adjust the tax brackets. What means that they could basically decide after which threshold tax rates, marginal tax rates, um, would change. And this is basically the natural experiment which we're going to exploit in our paper because we have information about Spaniards and we're going to know whether they moved as a response to their tax reform or not. So you can compare regions that did and did not change the exactly. tax rates. So what we see is that some regions basically increase their tax rates and um, like the most important ones with this respect are is basically Catalonia in the north and Andalusia in the south. And comparing this to Madrid, which is one, like, in the public media in Spain, it's always, it's sometimes called the tax haven of, of Spain. Um, the differential at the top of the income distribution is up to six percentage points. So comparing, like, the same individual and the tax bill of that individual between the region of Catalonia and the region of, of Madrid would make this person to pay for the top part of his income six percentage points more in taxes than in Madrid. What do you find? Do people respond and to these high rates of tax? We do find that people respond to the tax differential, but the elasticity we find is actually pretty low. In other words, we find that some people respond, but the amount of people which actually move due to this is not as high as people or politicians might have believed before. Um, To put this into a revenue perspective, so if you're going to increase your tax rate, you're going to get like the positive impact of the mechanical effect. The other two behavioral responses are always opposing. So if you would have a high outflow of people because they out-migrate, this mechanical effect would be reduced. However, what we find is that like, the mechanical effect is so big and the migration response is relatively small, such that a region which increases taxes 
will end up with higher tax revenues than before. And this is important because it basically means that there is still room for more redistribution. If for any reason a region wants to have higher top marginal tax rates because they have political preferences for more redistribution, they still have some room to do that. So it's not that all the people would respond in a way that they would just leave that region and the total, like the entire tax base, would just erode. Okay, so how should policymakers respond to your results? Should they feel more relaxed about raising taxes? That's what I would argue. I mean, we cannot say whether it's like welfare improving if you would increase taxes. The only conclusion we can basically, or like the only recommendation we can give is that if for any reason a region wants to redistribute more or wants to collect more tax revenues because they needed to, like, you know, get money for public good provision or for any other reason, I mean, you can also think about this as reducing inequality, there is still, like, some room to maneuver until you're going to reach that point, after which it wouldn't make any sense anymore to increase taxes even further. I should add that Doug's finding is an empirical one. Uh, and that, I suppose, is one of the main drawbacks of this big trend in economics, that when you start basing all of what you know on the current world, you can often only observe these very small changes. And you need the theorists to think about, okay, well, big picture, what happens to the system, or is there a limit beyond which we can't go? So probably there is some tax rate above which, you know, if tax rates get that high, then people will start moving or they will start responding so you will generate less tax revenue. Samir Keynes, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this episode of Money Talks. To read more about all these stories, check out the forthcoming issue of The Economist or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. Thanks for joining us. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.